how can we use technology and psychology to improve people's lives, improve their everyday habits? How do you get people hooked on your product? It sounds sinister. It sounds like manipulation, but remember there's two kinds of manipulation. There is persuasion, which is where we get people to do things they want to do. And then there's coercion, which is getting people to do things they don't want to do. Coercion is the bad stuff, right? We don't want to coerce people. We don't want to get people to do things they don't want to do. Now, there's a very simple word that differentiates persuasion and coercion. The difference between persuasion and coercion is regret. So if you get somebody to do something that they later regret, that's coercion. What we can do as business owners, as product designers, as managers, is use the psychology of habit-forming products to help people build good habits. I want you to get hooked onto the good habits, and I want you to mindfully understand how to disconnect and stop being distracted by the bad distractions. We stand today. The Business Method with a shout out. The Business Method. The Business Method Podcast. The Business Method Podcast featuring Chris Reynolds. Entrepreneurs, systems, methods, tools, and tactics. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I'm your host, Chris Reynolds, and welcome to the Business Method Podcast, a podcast featuring high-performing entrepreneurs and high-caliber people dissecting their different methods, tools, and strategies so we can apply them to our businesses and lives. On our first series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs that had built businesses creating $100,000 or more annually. On our second series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs that have built seven-figure businesses that can be ran anywhere in the world. And currently, we are interviewing 100 major influencers to get behind the minds and the science of using influence to grow business, affect income, results, economies, and cultures, especially post-COVID. Since we moved into a post-pandemic world, the landscape has changed drastically for most business owners. We're finding out what is working for the entrepreneurs out there that have positioned themselves well to make sure their businesses thrive, succeed, and continue to experience growth in this current economy. And now... Let's hop into today's show. The Business Method. Hey, gals and pals, listen up real quick because we have something exciting to share with you. First, for you high-performing entrepreneurs out there, we've taken the most powerful tips and tricks from over 400 episodes that our guests have shared on how to optimize their own personal performance, and we've made them into digestible micro-podcast episodes that are just two to eight minutes long. These high-performance episodes are being published on Monday and Friday each week and will be labeled as HP number 1234567891010 and so on. Those episodes are live now and they're designed for you to consume some quick, high-quality content when you only have a few minutes to spare. So be sure to subscribe to the Business Method podcast on your favorite app so you can get those delivered to you as soon as they are live. The next thing I wanted to share with you is about our private mastermind community for established entrepreneurs. If you have an established business that has good momentum and wanted to be involved in a higher level mastermind community that is curated specifically for entrepreneurs that are moving at the same speed as you with similar challenges, revenue, team size, and business niche, then we've got a group for you. Our private mastermind groups are facilitated by myself, yours truly, and my good friend Adam Anderson. Adam is a seasoned entrepreneur who's been involved in 20 plus startups 
startups over 20 years and recently had a multi-million dollar exit. I keep the members on track with their goals, productivity, and optimization, and Adam brings the vast business knowledge to the groups. Our purpose with this private community is to help you reach your business goals faster so you can remove yourself from your company and focus on bigger and better things. You can learn more about that private community and masterminds at thebusinessmethod.com forward slash masterminds. That's thebusinessmethod.com forward slash masterminds. And now let's hop into today's show. The Business Method. Hey listeners, welcome back to the show today. I am glad you are here and happy to introduce today's guest. Nir Ale is on the show all the way from Singapore and he is an expert on the intersection of psychology, technology, and business. He's a graduate and also previously taught at Stanford. He's an active investor in many habit-forming businesses, and he's co-founded and sold two tech companies. Nir was dubbed by the, the MIT Technology Review as the prophet of habit-forming technology. Nir is the author of two best-selling books, Hooked, where he wrote about how to build habit-forming products, which is what we're going to talk about today on the podcast and indistractable how to control your attention and choose your life which we'll also talk about which was named one of the best business and leadership books of the year by amazon and one of the best personal development books of the year by audible nears the manager of his solo vc fund and engagement partners and invest in habit forming products to improve users lives he has also invested in Eventbrite, Anchor.fm, Canva, Product Hunt, Focusmate, and many more habit-forming companies. Much of Nier's career, he worked in the video gaming and advertising industries where he learned and applied the techniques used to motivate and manipulate users. He now focuses on helping companies create behaviors that benefit their users while educating people on how to build healthy habits to improve their own lives. Nier, welcome to the show, man. How are you? Thanks. Great to be here. Yeah, I'm really glad to have you on the show. I love talking about all the things that you love, technology, business, psychology, habits, performance optimization, and we'll talk about something a little controversial too, is if technology is actually hijacking our brains or not. So I want to dive into this really cool intersection that has happened in the world, I would guess, over the past 20 years and accelerating more and more every year the combination of psychology, technology, and business. So from your perspective, Nir, and I know the world knows a lot about this, but still there's much more that we can learn because this is controlling a significant amount, or a lot of people think it's controlling a significant amount of our lives. So what's happening in those three intersections? Yes, I mean, so my specialty is really around how can we use technology and psychology to improve people's uh, lives, improve their everyday habits. So the class that I taught at the Stanford Graduate School of Business was all about how do you get people hooked on your product? And uh, that sounds, uh, it, 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 it sounds sinister. It sounds like manipulation. But remember, there's two kinds of manipulation. There is persuasion, which is where we get people to do things they want to do. And then there's coercion, which is getting people to do things they don't want to do. Coercion is the bad stuff, right? We don't want to coerce people. We don't want to get people to do things they don't want to do. Not only is that unethical, it's also bad for business because these days, let's face it, if a customer regrets doing business with you, they're not just going to stop doing business with you. They're going to tell all their friends not to do business with you either on social yeah. media, right? They'll tell everybody, don't, don't work with these people. So we would never want to use coercive tactics. That's a very short-sighted and unethical uh, use of these methods. What we can do as business owners, as product designers, as managers, is use the psychology of habit-forming products to help people good, build good habits. So it's not just Facebook and the video game companies that use these techniques. We can all use these techniques. So mm -hmm. the kind of work that I do 
uh, is for the kind of products and services that persuade people to do the things they themselves want to do. Well, how would we use that? We can get kids hooked onto online learning, which is something I've done and invested in with a, a company called Kahoot uh, and Quizzes. These are companies that use the hook model to get kids hooked onto learning. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, we can use the hook model to get people hooked onto exercise. So one of the case studies in my first book, Hooked, is uh, Fitbod, which is a product that gets people hooked to exercising in the gym. We can use these these service these uh, techniques to help people save money through a financial services product uh, to help them connect with loved ones. There's all kinds of ways we can use good habits to improve people's lives. So that's really the focus of, of my work. Of course, the flip side of good habits is that sometimes we have bad habits. Now, these aren't about the same products, right? Um, so it's not that I'm saying get people hooked and then now I'm going to teach you how to get unhooked. No, no, no. I want you to get hooked onto the good habits and I want you to mindfully understand how to disconnect and stop being distracted by the bad distractions. So while I help people uh, find ways to hook their customers to products like financial services and education and you know various types of products, we may want to consider in our lives what, what are the distractions that pull us away from what we really want to do. And so what I do in my second book is to analyze the same psychology uh, from an insider's perspective, given that you know I, I wrote the book on how these products get you hooked. I understand exactly what they do. And so I can deconstruct for you, hey, why is it that I watch too much television? Why is it that my kids seem to always be playing video games? Why is it that I'm always checking my cell phone to see what emails I've received? And is that actually good for me? Or is it a distraction? So that's what my second book, Indistractable, is all about. So when it comes to getting people hooked on products and services, it seems like, depending on one's opinion and perspective in the world, one one person could say this is good for a person and one person could say this is bad for the person, right? So maybe the food industry and there's an argument over, you know, what type of food is good for you or even supplement industry where someone believes this would be good for that person, this would not. Is there, so that I'm guessing there's some sort of gray area there. How does one as a business person and an entrepreneur define the ethics of that and where those boundaries are? Yeah, so it's a terrific question. So it's something I address in, in, in my first book and I've written more about it since, but I give people a two-part test that if you're asking yourself, okay, so this is a question for you. So now you have this superpower, this ability to manipulate people's minds. And remember, mm -hmm. manipulation is not necessarily a bad thing. All design is manipulation, whether it's interaction design, whether it's uh, interior design, <laughs> graphic design, all design is manipulation, right? It's getting you to do or think something that the designer wants you to do or think. That okay. is a form of manipulation. But again, there's two types of manipulation, coercion or persuasion. So persuasion is the ethical stuff. Coercion is the unethical stuff. Now, there's a very simple word that differentiates persuasion and coercion. The difference between per persuasion and coercion is regret. Okay. Regret. So if you do something, if you get somebody to do something that they later regret, that's coercion. That's something they did not want to do. And again, not only is it bad for your business, it's it's unethical. So that's a, there's a very simple test that we can use called the regret test that to make sure we as an organization don't use a tactic that people would later uh, regret, we, we run a regret test. What does a regret test look like? A regret test is when we actually bring people in and we as designers do this all the time. This is called usability testing. Every designer on the face of the earth has done this before. Mm -hmm. We show people the 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 the, the uh, low fidelity 
uh, early design that we have, whether it's a, a website or a, an app or whatever we're designing, we show people the prototype and we get their, their take on it. We see what they do with it. And we can do the same thing when it comes to the regret test. The re regret test says, would the user do what we have designed for them to do, knowing everything that we as the designer know? Right. Simple as that. Like, yeah. if you knew what was going to happen, would you still use this product? And I would argue that that regret test is much cheaper to do as a usability test up front before you have launched your product than after you've launched the product and now the whole world is mad at you. Yeah. So that's what we can do inside the company, right? To know whether we should use these tactics. But there's another step before this in terms of the individual, right? So whether you're a solo uh, entrepreneur or uh, you know working at a company that 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 tries to persuade. And look, all businesses try and persuade people. Um, you can ask yourself this two-part question to make sure that you are using these tactics ethically. Here's the two-part question. Number one is to look at yourself in the mirror and ask yourself, is what I'm working on materially improving people's lives? Mm -hmm. Okay. Is what I'm working on materially improving people's lives? Now, that's only something you can answer. This isn't a, a question for you to judge others or others to judge you. It is asking you to judge yourself. Is what I'm working on materially improving people's lives? But that's not enough. That's only part one of this two-part question. The second question is to ask yourself, am I the user? Okay, am I the user? Now, mm -hmm. why do I want you to ask that question? Because I want you to break the first rule of drug dealing. Chris, do you know what the first rule of drug dealing is? <laughs> Don't get high on your own supply. That's exactly <laughs> right. Never get high on your own supply. I'm not going to ask uh -huh. how you know that. But, but let's just say that that's the rule I want you to break. What do I mean? I want you to be the user. Why? Because if there are any deleterious effects to whatever it is you're working on, you're going to be the first one to know about it. Not only that, this is an overlooked secret to entrepreneurial success. Mm -hmm. Build something you want. Right. The hardest part about building a product, especially when it comes to you know blue ocean opportunities, is figuring out what is it your customer really wants. Well, mm -hmm. you don't always have this luxury, but an amazing hack is build for yourself. Why? Because you are the user and you understand what you want better than anybody else. Exactly. So if you can answer in the affirmative to these two questions, am I building something that materially improves people's lives and I am the user, you fall into this quadrant of being what I call a facilitator. Now, okay. that doesn't mean you can't make money building something that doesn't improve people's lives or that you're not the user. You certainly can. That's not the question. The question is, are you applying these very powerful psychological persuasion techniques for, for good in a way that is a good use of your human capital? This small, this you know blip of time that you have on earth, are you allocating that time in a, in a way you'll be proud of? And I think if you pass that two-part test, not only are you in a good ethical position, you're also in a very enviable business position mm -hmm. because you are building for somebody that you know intimately, you're building for yourself. And so in that <laughs> case, you can't fail because let, let's face it here. In business, if you're starting a business, look, I've started three companies, uh, had two successful exits. If you are looking to get rich by being an entrepreneur, you're, you're just bad at math. right? Because the odds are horrible. Right? Like most businesses do not work out. Right. However, if you are building a product that you yourself want, and whether your business goes IPO or not, doesn't matter, you built something in the world that you want to exist, your odds of success are 100%. Mm. Because you have built something that you yourself want. And I think you greatly increase your odds of business success too. 
But at least worst case scenario, even if the business fails, you built a product that you want to see in the world, you succeeded. And so I think that following that two-part test is, is a good ethical imperative as well as a good business imperative. What if you, you hit those points and you build something you want, but it, it exists in a red ocean as opposed to the blue ocean, but you still really love the product, you love the service, and you keep working at it? What are your thoughts? When, when do you cut costs? When do you pull back? When do you stop? Yeah. Well, it really depends on, uh, on why you're building, you know, so I'll, I'll, I'll I'll tell you a quick story as a, as a sidebar. Uh, I have a friend who, uh, I I met in college. He's one of my closest friends. We talk at least once a month and, uh, he lives in LA. I'm in Singapore. And, uh, we, so we graduated in 2001. So 20 years ago, I graduated from college and right after college, he goes to LA and he wants to be an actor. And uh, we're like, okay, great. We're going to see on TV and the movies someday. Well, 20 years later, he hasn't made it, <laughs> right? He's like, he's still working hard. And I, I, and a few years ago, I asked him, I was like, you know, hey, you know, you've been doing this for a long time now. Like, when is it time to hang it up? You know, like maybe you're not going to be a famous actor. And he says, look, this is my job. My job is to audition. That's my job. I can't do anything else. Like I am called to do this. Now, whether somebody picks me because they like the shape of my nose or my face or my voice, that's not really up to me. I have to do this. And he's actually really happy whether or not he's famous. It doesn't actually matter to him, mm. right? I mean, would he like to be famous? Sure. But he's, I think, put himself in the right frame of mind that he's controlling everything he can control. Mm-hmm. And the rest that he can't control, whether some director you know, likes his, his, his nose or not, is not up to him. <laughs> He's doing the best he can. And I think that's actually the, the, the healthiest way to be an entrepreneur is to do the thing that you are called to do. Like do the thing that you can't imagine doing anything else. My friend cannot imagine doing anything but auditioning to be an actor, right? Mm-hmm. That, like that is what he has to do. And he told me, he's like, I would love to do anything but, but I can't. Like this is what I have to do. Yeah. So I would say for an entrepreneur, it is so hard <laughs> to be an entrepreneur. I've, you know, I've, I've started and sold several companies. It is so difficult. It is mm-hmm. so much work. Like you would, you, you would save your time. You, you would self, save yourself so much time and money if you did pretty much anything else. <laughs> but if you have to do this, then you have to do it. And that should be the only reason you do it is because you can't think of anything else you'd rather do. Right. But is there a, a limit? So say, you know, you spend 10 years building this product or service and 10 years is a long time, right? Maybe just five years and you're just not making any money off of it. Do you say when's, when's, when's that cutoff point where you say, okay, I, maybe it's time to shift and create something new that is in alignment that is very similar. Like maybe your friend instead of, um, you know, and I don't know your friend, but instead of one genre of movies shifts to another genre of movies, but it's still in it and, and, and maybe it works and, but it's still acting. Right. So, yeah, so yeah. what's your, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, sure. So the, pro- the process of being an entrepreneur, I think is being a professional student, mm-hmm. you know, so you're a student too. It's not about making money. I think a lot of people start businesses because they say, Oh, I want to make a lot of money. I want to get rich. Uh, I want to be my own boss. Little, little do they know when they start a business, uh, it's not that you don't have a boss. It's that everybody else now becomes your boss. Your customer becomes your boss. Your uh, your employees become your boss. Everybody else is now your boss. You have a hundred bosses as opposed to one uh, because you're the boss. Surprise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's it can be very, very stressful. But your job, I think, is a professional student as, as an entrepreneur. You're constantly learning. And I think it's the entrepreneurs who don't learn who fail. So yeah. just as you're saying, you know, successful entrepreneurs, what we see is that they connect the dots. They find luck. 
Like they literally see, they've done these experiments on folks where they will find that people, uh, some people see opportunities where others don't. They do these experiments where they, you know, put a hundred dollar bill on the, on the ground. And some people will literally walk by the hundred dollar bill, think to themselves, oh, you know, it's just fake money and they don't even bother to pick it up. Right. Whereas there are some people in the world who say, whoa, look at that. There's an opportunity. Let me jump on it. Um, you know, they did these experiments with people uh, where they asked them to to take do a very tedious task of of uh, uh, circling all the T's in a magazine. Right. They gave them a bunch of papers and say, you have looked at the magazine. I want you to circle all the T's. But some people, they flipped through the, the magazine first and they noticed that there was an, a, a sheet that said, ignore these instructions, flip to the back and hand the book to to the proctor. <laughs> and those people who like zoomed out a little bit and saw, wait a minute, okay, what's the big picture here? Uh-huh. And they flipped through, they kind of wanted to uh, uh, suss out the, the scope of, of the work. They saw that, whereas other people tediously circled all the T's and it sucked, right? Mm-hmm. So there's something about that entrepreneurial mentality of looking at the big picture, of sco- uh, of zooming out and saying, okay, what's the big picture here? What am I really trying to accomplish? And sometimes that means tacking and pivoting when you see new opportunities, right? So I'm not averse to that. It's about that insight of, of, of noticing those opportunities and, and grabbing them when they come along. So it's not that you have to, you know, um, uh, hit your head against the wall for years, whether you like it or not, on one idea forever and ever. It's about the persistence to, to, to keep going. It's about being a nonstop person who is not necessarily just working on one stupid idea their whole life, but is that this constant student of what their customers and employees are saying, and that helps them find the proper path. Let's talk about, in your book, Hooked, you talk about building products that create habit-forming behavior. And I, I would guess this includes services as well. Is that, do those sure. overlap? Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. And and then you talk about there's there's a cycle, looping cycle to think of when creating these products and services, uh, a trigger, an action, a variable reward, and a continued investment. Can you walk us through, through those four stages? Sure, absolutely. So the hook model is an experience designed to connect the user's problem with your product with enough frequency to form a habit. So what okay. kind of products are good candidates to form a habit? It's not about enterprise or consumer. It's about frequent or infrequent. Okay, mm-hmm. that's the, the number one criteria. So uh, sometimes I, I get uh, companies that hire me to help them with their, their product, uh, habit-forming products. Or man, you know, I'm, I'm an active angel investor. I've invested in over 30 companies and three unicorns so far. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the number one criteria of a company that I will not invest in or I will say, look, I don't think you're a good candidate to build a habit is one that where the product is not used with sufficient frequency, okay? Right. Very, very difficult to change a consumer habit if the behavior does not occur with sufficient frequency. Now, mm-hmm. that cutoff is about a week's time or less. Okay, so once a week, they, then about once a week, right? Okay. Uh, or or less. So uh, there's a lot of rumors out there and myths. You know, oh, to create a habit, you have to do a behavior for 66 days or 45 days. It's nonsense. That's not true. What we do know, what the studies do find, is that the more frequently the behavior occurs the more likely it is to become a habit. So right. when we think of it, the reason my, my work is so focused on technology is that when we think about these devices we all carry around with us in our pockets, the average smartphone user checks their screen 150 times a day on average, 150 yeah, times a day. I measured That's that. That's why there's true. <laughs> so much opportunity, right? Yeah. Because that very high sense of frequency means that we now have the opportunity to reach consumers in a, in a very high frequency format. So that's the number one gate. Does you, is your product used with sufficient frequency? Now, I would back up actually one step before and ask, does your business even need 
uh, a habit. If a product is sold once, it's sales-driven, not product-driven, okay. okay? If your product is bought once, it's sales-driven, right? So um, insurance, right? Cybersecurity software, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the kind of product that you buy once and you don't have to use it unless you, know, you get in an, a car accident or something, that's not a good candidate for a habit. The, the, the problem is if you don't build a habit, you need some other competitive advantage. So let, let's take car insurance, for example. Car insurance is something that you buy once and hopefully you never have to use, right? Mm -hmm. The problem is if you look at industries like car insurance, they beat each other up, competitors beat each other up based on price and features, right? Uh, one, uh, Geico comes out and says, oh, 15 minutes will save you 15% on car insurance. Okay, well then the competitor comes out and says, oh yeah, 12 minutes will save you 20% on car insurance. And they're fighting each other tooth and nail right. for on price and features, which of course decreases margins. Mm -hmm. Habit forming products don't have to do that, <laughs> right? Habit forming products, the customer stops even asking about the competition. Think about Google. Mm -hmm. Google owns about 90% of the search engine market. What they have is a monopoly of the mind. Why? Because how many of us, before we Google something, think to ourselves, hmm, who has the best search engine? Nobody does that. We just Google it with little or no conscious thought. In fact, yeah. one of my former clients, uh, I worked, I used to, I did a consulting project for Microsoft with Bing. And they were so desperate to figure out how to make this search engine competitive, right? Microsoft owns Bing, the number two search engine in the world. And, and I told them, don't. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have a chance. And this was after they came to me and they said, look, we, we have an incentive program. We're going to use gamification. We're going to get people to use our, our search engine. Bing, for a while, they would pay people. They would literally give people money to get them to, to search with their search engine. Mm -hmm. And it still didn't work, right? Yeah. Because Google has, has this monopoly of the mind. It's not that they force you to search with Google. It's that in your brain, Ah, let's just Google it. And in fact, okay, some people say, well, Google's better. That's why I search with it. No, it's not. In head-to-head -head comparisons of Google versus Bing, third-party studies have shown if you strip out the branding so people don't know which is which, it's a 50-50 preference split. Okay. Literally, people, it's a 50-50 split between which one people prefer. So the only reason we keep using a product like Google is out of habit. <laughs> and the same goes for Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and WhatsApp, all these tech products it's purely a habit that keeps us coming back. I mean, you could code up Twitter in an afternoon. It's no big deal, right? Yeah. But this habit is what keeps us coming back. So all that's preamble to go into your question around, okay, what is the hook model? What's the secret pattern that these companies are using and what can we learn from it? So if your product is one where the business model needs repeat engagement, okay, where your product needs to be used. So if you're building enterprise SaaS software, right? If the customer doesn't use it, they're going to stop paying for it. Uh, if you're building any kind of soft, uh, any kind of product, software, not software, online, offline, doesn't matter, enterprise consumer, where you need repeat engagement, where wouldn't it be great if you didn't have to spend all that money on spammy, uh, spammy advertising and messaging to, to consumers? What if consumers came back on their own? What would that do for your business? Now you're a good candidate to build a habit. Okay, mm -hmm. so what is the hook model? The hook model has four steps, starts with a trigger. Okay, there are two kinds of triggers. We have what we call an external trigger and an internal trigger. We'll get back to those internal triggers in a minute. An external okay. trigger is a ping, a ding, a ring, something in your outside environment that tells you what to do next. Okay, we see these every day. We design these into our products. It's any kind of message that tells you what to do. The next step is the action phase. The action phase is defined as the simplest behavior done in anticipation of reward. 
So opening an app, scrolling a feed, pushing a play button, the simplest thing your user can do to get to get relief from that discomfort, to find what they're looking for. Okay, that's the action phase. And there's all kinds of techniques we can use to make that behavior as easy as possible to do because the easier something is to do, the more likely people are to do it. And there's okay. a lot, lot of research there that we can talk about. The third step of the hook is called the variable reward phase. Variable rewards come out of the work of B.F. Skinner, the father of operant conditioning. Skinner did these amazing experiments where he took pigeons. This was back in the 1940s and 50s. He took pigeons and he put them in a little box. Today, we call this a Skinner box. And he allowed the pigeons to peck at a little disc to receive a reward, to get a little food pellet. And at first, every time the pigeon pecked at the disc, they would re receive this little treat, this little food pellet. So very quickly, Skinner could train these pigeons uh, through what's called operant conditioning, right? If you've ever had a puppy or maybe a kid, this is, <laughs> this is how we get uh, puppies and children to do things. We give them a treat and then they do what, what we want, right? right? So that's what Skinner did with these pigeons. Great, not, not a big deal. But then something interesting happened. One day, Skinner walked into his lab and he realized he didn't have enough of these treats, okay? He didn't have enough of these rewards. So he couldn't afford to give it to the pigeons every time they pecked at the disc. He could only afford to give it to them once in a while. Mm -hmm. So sometimes the pigeon would peck at the disc, no food pellet would come out. The next time the pigeon would peck at the disc, they would receive a reward. Okay. And to Skinner's amazement, what happened was that the rate of response, the number of times the pigeon pecked at the disc, increased when the reward was given on a variable schedule of reinforcement. Mm. So this mechanic is endemic to all sorts of things that we find engaging, engrossing, the kind of things that capture our attention, won't let go, these are called variable rewards. And once you see them in the world, you can't unsee them. They're everywhere. If you think about spectator sports, okay, why do we hyperventilate about watching some stupid ball bounce a, a, along a, a court or a net or a pitch? Why are we all obsessed with some ball going into a basket or, or, or a puck going into a net? It's variability, reward. right? Yeah. It's variability. Well, what's going to happen? I don't know who's going to score, who's going to win. Why do we love reading, you know, romance novels or, or great works of fiction? It's all about uncertainty. How is the conflict going to resolve? Why does the news media keep us hooked? Is it really because we give a shit about somebody suffering 3,000 miles away? Not really. It's because we, there's variability. What's new? What's different, right? Mm -hmm. This drama that the media wants us to watch, not because we, we, they want to keep us informed, but because that they know their business model is predicated on the first three letters of news, N-E-W. What's new? What's different, right? That's what we're, we're hooked to. The stock market. Why do people day trade? Day trading is pretty much the worst way you can invest your money, right? It's not a good uh -huh. way to make yeah. uh, make profits. Much better ways just to be a passive investor. But we like that feeling of control that the variability of the stock market is just like a slot machine, right? Mm -hmm. Slot machines or all games of chance are all about uncertainty, right? When right. you pull in a slot machine, what's going to happen next? What might I win? That's a variable reward, just like Skinner's pigeons. Online, we see this in spades. When you think about the feed, right? Why does everything that we use online have a feed these days? The Facebook feed, the Instagram feed, the LinkedIn feed, all these feeds. What is it? When you scroll on your feed, some things are interesting, some things are boring. Mm -hmm. And to see more of that content, you have to scroll and scroll just like pulling on a slot machine. So that variable reward mechanic is endemic to all sorts of habit-forming products. That's what keeps us coming back. Okay. Now, we can use this to great effect. We can use this as the, 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 the engine 
for healthy behaviors, like Kahoot does for education, like Fitbod does for fitness. We can use that as that engine to keep people coming back. Now, the last step of the hook model is the investment phase. And this is probably the most overlooked and I think most interesting part of the hook model. This is where the user puts something into the product in anticipation of some kind of future benefit. And it does this through what's called stored value. Stored value is when you put something into the product and the product is made better with use. Now, this is a really, really big deal, okay? In the history of business, it always took a long time to customize a product to user needs. So when Henry Ford famously said, you can have any color of Model T as long as it's black, the reason he said that is was because it was a lot of work back in the day to retool his factory so that you could make a, a green car and a blue car and a red car. That was a lot of work, right? Now, of course, manufacturing since then, car manufacturers have gotten really good at that. Now you have a lot of choice, a lot of selection, but still it takes a long time for you. If you say, look, I want this kind of car with these kind of features. Okay, we'll deliver it to you in six to eight weeks. Today, Habit-forming technologies facilitated through these interactive platforms that we have carrying around in our pockets, our smartphones, this is done in real time. Mm -hmm. So what's amazing about interactive technology is that you can make a product for a market size of one at scale. That if you were to log into my Facebook account or my Pinterest account, it actually wouldn't be interesting to you because it has been tailored to my tastes based on my data that I have invested in that platform. And it's made better and better the more I use it. So what's so crazy about these technologies, if you think about offline products, right? A car, furniture, clothing, all of these things, they depreciate, right? They depreciate with use. The more you use them, the less they are worth. Mm -hmm. Habit-forming products do the opposite. Think about this. They appreciate. They get better and better the more we use them because of the more data we put into these platforms. So that investment phase from a product perspective is a key to building a habit-forming product because the more it's used, the stickier it gets, the better it gets, and therefore more likely people are to return to it. So that the ultimate goal of a habit-forming product is to connect to an internal trigger. What's an internal trigger? We talked about this when I started explaining the hook model. Right. As opposed to an external trigger, which is all these pings and dings in our outside environment, An internal trigger comes from within the user, okay? An internal trigger is typically an uncomfortable emotional state that the user seeks to escape from. Boredom, loneliness, fatigue, anxiety, uncertainty. This is what a habit-forming product will attach itself to so that when the user feels a certain way, they use the product or service with little or no conscious thought, purely out of habit. Now, think about how amazingly powerful that is that you don't even have to send someone a ping or ding or an advertisement or anything to get them to to take an action. They prompt themselves whenever they feel a certain way so that eventually a habit-forming product doesn't even need those external triggers. We know there's been been several studies now that find that only 10% of the time that people check their phone, 10% is because of an external trigger. Mm. 90% of the time that we check our phones, we are checking our phones because of an internal trigger loneliness, boredom, fatigue, stress, anxiety, uncertainty. That is what prompts us to check these devices because we are looking to escape discomfort. Right. And of course, the products that we use to escape that discomfort is what we form habits with. So that's the ultimate goal of a habit-forming product. So if we check our phones on average 150 times per day, 
15 of those more or less are external triggers and 135 of those are internal triggers, right? Right. So I've, I've got some questions on a couple of questions on that. Is that having that type of internal trigger, so many of those types of internal triggers, do you think that's healthy? So that's a whole nother question. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, what, that's what Indistractable, my second book, is all about. And I would okay. say, uh, is, is technology good? Is it bad? Is it ethical? Is it unethical? Is it uh, uh, healthy? Is it unhealthy? The answer is yes. <laughs> it's all those things. It's about how we use it. Right. right. Technology is a tool. A hammer is a tool. A hammer can be used to build a house or bash someone's head in. Right. 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 So it's really about how we use it. I think that we can absolutely uh, have our cake and eat it too, that we can build technology to improve people's lives. So if an app like Fitbod gets you to build a habit of going to the gym and exercising, that's, that's awesome. Great. That's super yeah. healthy. No one's getting addicted to, you know, SaaS software or education software <laughs> or these products that help people live healthier lives. Fair. Now, yeah. the other end of the spectrum is like, what if I use a product that I later regret using, right? If I spend too much time watching Netflix, right? Netflix uses the hook model in spades. Facebook, sure. of course, uses the hook model. Instagram, uh, Slack, right? Email. Email mm -hmm. is probably the mother of habit-forming products. And let me tell you, as entrepreneurs, as business people, we, many of us, way overdo it when it comes yeah. to our work, uh, yeah. right? Are we, we, many of us are escaping. We talked about those internal triggers. This is where you know we segue into becoming indistractable. The way we become indistractable is to dismantle these hooks that don't serve us. Mm -hmm. So what we want to do is to build good hooks in our lives that help us build good habits and break the bad habits by dismantling the hooks. And that starts with understanding those internal triggers. So for example, you know, we think, oh, work, exercise, these things are good. These things are healthy. Well, look, if it takes you away from doing other things, if you're going to work, and I know many people like this, you know, for, I went to Stanford and we had many of these, you know, eight uh, type A personalities that they were, uh, I don't know if they're workaholics, that's not a real thing, but, you know, they were definitely going to work uh, for other reasons, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? They were looking to prove something to somebody who, who thought they weren't good enough. They were escaping of terrible home life situation because they weren't getting along with their wife. They hate their kids. So they go to the office, right? <laughs> they checked email a million times a day so that they wouldn't have to think about the shit going on in their real life, right? Yeah. So we want to make sure that no matter what that behavior is, it's something that serves us as opposed to we are serving it. So becoming indistractable is not just about, oh, you know, e too much email or too much Facebook or too much technology. It's about anything that takes us away from what we plan to do with our time, our attention and our life. Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. Another on, on the, the four looping cycles, uh, we were talking about variable rewards yeah. and you were talking about the, the kind of addiction or the longing that we have for participating in activities that are variable, right? Uncertain. What what's the psychology behind that? Why is it so thrilling for us or addicting or exciting for us to participate in things that have that uncertainty? Yeah, the variability. Yeah. And it's not only us. I mean, it was Skinner's, Skinner's pigeons. It's, uh, yeah. you know, animals. all kinds of animals. Yeah. yeah. All kinds of animals have this response to variability. And without getting too, you know, without geeking out too much in terms of, of the brain science here, this is called oh, geek away, geek error. away. You can geek away. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the reason yeah. we like this so much is that it turns out that the brain, you know, we used to think the brain is a computer. Every, every generation 
uh, thinks that the brain works like its latest technology. So the, from the ancient Egyptians to during the Industrial Revolution, they thought the brain was all about like pipes and uh, fluids and steam and things like that. No, that doesn't, doesn't work that way. In our <laughs> modern age, many people think the brain is like a computer. It's calculating mathematical functions. No, it doesn't work like that either. What we're discovering today is that the brain is a prediction machine. Mm -hmm. And so what your brain is constantly doing is seeing the world through a, a, a hallucination, a hallucination okay. informed by your past memories, by mm -hmm. what we call a prior. Uh, so what your brain is doing is it's seeing the world uh, through input, because remember your, your brain is not actually seeing the world, you're, you're, it's getting electrical impulses that are trying to make sense of the world around you, but it can't process all everything that's happening all at once. So there's billions of bits of information happening. It has to selectively focus on the most important thing all the time. That's why attention management is so important. Mm -hmm. So in order to do that, it's constantly checking the input signals from your senses to what it already knows with your priors. And so anytime that there's a discrepancy between what your brain thinks is going to happen and what is happening, mm -hmm. that's when we perk up. That's okay. actually the role of, of dopamine. You know, we hear a lot of the oh. time people who don't really understand what dopamine is all about. They, they, they seem to they suggest that dopamine is like this feel good chemical and, you know, the neurotransmitter that it's like cocaine in the brain. It's totally not true. It, dopamine is not a feel good hormone. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter that gets you to pay attention. It says, well, something different here, something new. Right. Okay. So uh, whenever there's something we don't expect or we're not sure how to predict, the brain really focuses in on that, right? Really wants to know what's going to happen next because this is how we learn. This is how we can more accurately assess the way the world works is through cause and effect. And okay. when suddenly something worked one way, one way, one way, and now different, that's when we perk up. That's when we focus. That's when we engage. And so that, that's really why we are, uh, become hooked to these variable rewards. Uh, it, it's an evolutionary adaptation, right? That we want to be very attuned to understanding how things work for our very survival. Uh, in, in Hooked, I talk about this fascinating phenomenon. Let me geek out again, again a bit here from an anthological perspective. Please do, yeah. Um, there's, there's, you know, there's this mystery uh, for ages around how is it that human beings uh, first hunted meat? Right, because you know, there's this there's this vision that oh, human beings had bows and arrows and clubs, and we like went up to an animal and we hit, you know <laughs> speared them and killed them, and like that's how we ate them. And it's actually not true. That uh, if if anybody who's ever shot a bow and arrow before, uh, you can't actually get that far with much strength, right? Like you can't take down a a a, a, a you know an animal uh, with you know primitive bow and arrow. Uh, from from far distance, you have to get pretty darn close to, yeah. to kill an animal. Turns out the way we did this was called persistence hunting. And there's some tribes uh, in Africa who still do this today. Mm -hmm. And the way persistence hunting works is the the most fit males in the tribe typically will uh, find the the biggest animal they can find. So in this case, they hunt kudu, which is a, a type of antelope. Um, and they look for the big ones. They look for the ones with the huge horns mm -hmm. and the big male, which is different from like how lions hunt. Lions will hunt the weak, the, the young, the, the slow. But of course, okay. humans can't run very fast, right? We, but what we can do is we can run very far. Right. And so what they will do still to this day, they'll find that big kudu who has this huge horns, who can't run for very far, but can run fast. And they'll keep chasing them and chasing them 
and chasing them. And they'll run the distance of about a marathon until this huge animal collapses of exhaustion. Mm -hmm. So if you've ever wondered why is it that humans are the only hairless apes, have you noticed that? How we're <laughs> the only primates that don't have a bunch of hair, yeah. right? If you look at a, a deer, an antelope, you know, most animals are covered with fur, dogs, yeah. right? A great way to kill your dog is to go jogging with them. Dogs are not meant to jog, they're meant to sprint. Most right. animals who are covered with fur are meant to sprint. The reason we're hairless is because we perspire. We have these sweat glands that keep us cool and allow us to keep running and running and running and running for 10, 20 miles, mm -hmm. right? So that's the way we killed animals. Now, how does all this relate to variable rewards? If you can imagine a hunter who has to track an animal for 20 miles until that animal gives up and collapses, and by the way, that's, that's when we would spear them. Spears yeah. are only good at literally point blank range when, yeah. when they would kill the animal and they still do this today, it's they're right up next to the animal because the animal is exhausted, right? Mm -hmm. And that's when they kill them. It's not, you know, even bow and arrow, they use a bow and arrow to, to bleed the animal to death, not to kill them from a distance. So in order to do that, in order to get our bodies to follow our brains, we needed to hone in to tunnel vision right. on which direction that animal was, was going. Right. And so that is a slot machine. That's a variable reward of what, you know, are they going to break left, right? What speed? And so that ability to focus in on what's different, what's changing, that's a tremendous evolutionary adaptation. So that's why we have this fascination with variable rewards. That's absolutely fascinating. I think that's so, I mean, I love understanding how our brain's working and how it relates to, to achieving things in the world. I think that is just phenomenal. Do you, do you, in in some way, it has to be kind of related to our fight or flight response as well, right? Because it's the almost like the brain is saying, "There's a change. Should I fight, flight, freeze? Should, what should I do?" Um, and it's kind of like it, it forces that attention that maybe we're not getting in other areas of our lives. Yeah, certainly. There, I mean, this is you know, habits are just another form of learning. That's mm -hmm. all they are. And mm -hmm. about forty percent of what you do day in and day out is purely done out of habit. Mm -hmm. uh, defined as these behaviors done with little or no conscious thought. And so it's a tremendous evolutionary adaptation for us to be able to not think about every little thing. Like, you know, remember the first time you learned to drive a car, right? Where, where if you were 15, 16, 17, you know, you were white knuckling it, right? You have to think, think about every little thing when you're driving and it's stressful and you're, you have to be super hyper vigilant and aware to make sure you don't get in an accident. Uh -huh. Now, you know, when you're an adult, you can drive a car and have a conversation and, you know, drink on your Slurpee and, you know, you can do a lot of different <laughs> things because your brain has put the driving process, uh, the skill that you acquired on autopilots, on habit. And that's, that's an incredibly powerful skill. Now, the danger of habits is because habits are defined as behaviors done with little or no conscious thought. Sometimes we can do these things uh, on autopilot that we later look back and say, wait, what, what was I doing? Was that actually a good use of time. And mm -hmm. many of us today are, are trapped in these busyness cycles, right? Not business, but busyness cycles where we're working all day long, you know, running around like chickens with their heads cut off, thinking we're productive. And we, because it's a mindless habit, we never stop to ask ourselves, wait a minute, is this constant email checking and Slack notifications and meetings and phone calls? Like, is this actually what I need to be doing with my time? Mm -hmm. Is this helping me live consistently with my values? Uh, and without snapping out of that, we can go down this, this habit trap, uh, of just, you know, repeating these cycles. And we wake up 20, 30 years later and we say, what the hell was I doing with my life? What was I doing with my business? Exactly. I was on autopilot. I wasn't really thinking things through. 
So I'm curious if you, what are some ways that help you become more aware of that? So I have this exercise that I do every, probably every couple of years where I spend a couple of weeks just writing down what I do every 20 minutes for basically Monday through Friday for two weeks. And it's very eye-opening because then I become like a fly on the wall of my own behaviors. And I think the first time I did it, I realized I was wasting like three hours a day. And this was 12 mm -hmm. years ago when I first did it. And it was mm -hmm. shocking. And then I, shocking. then I did it. I did it a couple of years ago and I realized, man, I'm like, I spent too much time in the bathroom getting ready and showering and doing, you know, <laughs> I'm like, how can I minimize that so I can spend more time either working or doing the things I love? So what are yeah. some things that, that you do or that others can do to help them become more aware of the useless sure. the habits that we've picked up? Yeah. Okay. So this, this is a great segue to indistractable. Perfect. So here again, there are four steps. I'm, I'm very partial to four steps. Okay. Um, and, and, uh, just so happened to be that there's four steps to becoming indistractable. Starting with where we left off in terms of the hooked model, in terms of how to build good habits, the best place to start is with these internal triggers. So as a reminder, internal triggers are these uncomfortable emotional states uh, that, that we look to escape from. Now we can escape those uncomfortable emotional states with good behaviors, things that move us forward in life, things that move us towards what we want, things that are uh, in accordance with our values and intentions. This is called acts of traction. Mm -hmm. Now the opposite of traction is distraction. Okay. Distraction is any action that pulls us away from what we plan to do, further away from our goals and values, further away from becoming the kind of person we want to become. So the first place to start is understanding what are those internal triggers in your life and how can you master them as opposed to letting them become your master? Because here's the thing, write this down if you can, if you're listening to me right now, time management is pain management. It's a really important point. Mm. Time management is pain management. Before we understand really why do we go off track, why do we get distracted, which by the way is not a new problem. It's not these cell phones and the internet and Facebook and Netflix that cause distraction. Plato, the Greek philosopher, talked about distraction 2,500 years ago. This is part of the human condition. People have always been complaining about distraction. It's not a new problem. <laughs> so what we have to realize is to ask ourselves, wait a minute, why do we get distracted exactly? If you know what to do, why don't you just freaking do it? <laughs> right? Right. Like, we, Who doesn't know that if you want to get in shape, you have to exercise and eat right? Does right. anybody need another stupid diet book to tell us how to do that? We know no. uh, if, uh, if you want to do great at your job, right? What do you have to do? You have to do the hard work that yeah. other people don't want to do. That's how you get better at your job. Do the work. You yeah. know what to do. Why don't we do it? <laughs> uh, if you want to have great relationships, you know how you have a great relationship? You consistently put in time with the people you love. Yeah. Right. We know that. Why don't we do it? You're right. Why do we sit around the dinner table on our phones opposed to being fully present with the people we love? The, the, this is such a fascinating question. And by the way, I suffered from this. I was the most distracted person you'd ever met. I, it took me five years to write Indistractable. Well, guess what? Because I got distracted all the time. And you needed That's it, why right? I need to write this book. Yeah. Well, you, were, you were the best customer for the product you created, right? That's exactly right. I wrote yeah. Indistractable because, funny enough, when I wrote Hooked, I, I, wasn't as busy, right? It was only after I wrote Hooked and the book started doing really well and selling hundreds of thousands of copies, I started getting speaking engagements and consulting work and cool angel investment opportunities. I got so busy that I was distracted from doing the thing that I really loved and made me successful in the first place, the writing, right? Mm -hmm. I got distracted from when I was with my daughter and I'd be checked my phone as opposed to being fully present with her. And that's when I wanted to really figure out, okay, how do I become indistractable? If I know what I want to do, why don't I just do it? So that's when I started you know, diving into this research over the past five years to, of writing the book to really figure out 
the deeper psychology of distraction. Cause I wasn't, I didn't like this idea that, Oh, it's just our technology that's making us distracted. That's, that's silly. It's not, it's not true. It's much, it's a much deeper problem than that. Starting with these internal triggers. So in order to understand why we go off track, why we don't do the things we say we're going to do, we have to understand motivation, right? What is motivation? Mm -hmm. Many people think erroneously that motivation is about carrots and sticks. We've all heard this before, right? Mm -hmm. It's about the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. Uh, Sigmund Freud said this with his pleasure principle. Jeremy Bentham said something similar. It's not true. We do not do what we do for the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. That is not true. That's an antiquated model. Turns out everything you do, everything you do is you do for only one reason and one reason only. And that is the desire to escape discomfort. That's Mm. it. The desire to escape discomfort, all human behavior, even seeking something pleasurable, right? Yeah. Desire, wanting, craving, lusting for pleasure is motivating because it hurts. Yeah. Right. There's a reason we say love hurts. Yeah. It does. <laughs> Neurologically speaking, that is exactly what's going on. Uh-huh. So what that means, therefore, if all human behavior is about the desire to escape discomfort, that means time management is pain management. So if we are going to do what we say we're going to do in life, we have to realize that procrastination, distraction, it's not a character flaw. Okay, there's nothing wrong with you. People overdiagnose themselves. They medicalize normal behavior thinking, oh, the only solution is to go get a diagnosis and a pill. For some people, that's a good option. Very, very small single digit percentages of people actually have anything that needs a diagnosis or a pill. The vast majority of us, we're just distracted. Mm-hmm. We haven't learned the tactics to deal with discomfort that comes from hard work, that comes from boredom, loneliness, uncertainty, fatigue in a way that leads us towards traction rather than distraction. So that's Mm -hmm. step number one, master the internal triggers. Can we talk more in depth on indistractable? Because I love, I just love learning and sharing the, the things that could really help people create these boundaries in their lives, because it's a pathway in our brain, right? We, we create a habit. It creates a pathway in our brain to, instead of going to the gym, when we know it's good for us to eat the ice cream or stay at home or watch Netflix or whatever, is the easier thing. So you talked about the first one, right? And, and there's four in total. What are the four again? Right. So the first step is to master the internal triggers. And there's all okay. kinds of steps we can talk about. There's dozens of different techniques that anyone can use mm-hmm. to, to master those internal triggers. So what I wanted to give people is a bunch of arrows in their quiver that they can use whenever okay. they feel that discomfort to know what they are going to do so that they are led towards traction rather than distraction. That's the most important first step. Okay. No tricks, no tips, no techniques will work unless you first master internal triggers. And we can talk about how to do that with some very practical steps. Okay. The second step, just to kind of give you an overview of all four, the second step is to make time for traction, right? So we talked about traction is the opposite of distraction. Mm-hmm. So what we have to do is we have to understand that you cannot call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. Mm-hmm. I have worked with hundreds of people who complain to me about how distracted they are and how their boss wants this and their kids want that. And you see what happened in the news. I can't seem to get done what I want to get done. And then I say, well, what did you get distracted from exactly? What was on your schedule that you didn't do? Mm -hmm. And they say, my schedule, no, I have a to-do list. Look at all the things on my to-do list. And I say, ah, I see your problem. Right. People don't understand this. To-do lists are one of the worst things you can do for your personal productivity. Because if you look at your to-do list, 
to tell yourself what to do before you look at your calendar, mm -hmm. you've made a huge mistake. We have to plan our time. If we don't plan our time, somebody is going to plan it for us. And we can talk about why to-do lists and running your life on a to-do list is so toxic. We can get into that. So that's step number two is making time for traction. Understanding how you will spend your, your time is a critically important technique. The third step is to hack back the external trigger. So this is where we get into the nitty gritty of how do I remove all those pings and dings that don't serve me on my phone, on my computer, meetings. Oh my God, how many of us spend so much time <laughs> in stupid meetings yeah. that are nothing but a distraction? Yeah. Email, right? How much time do we spend on email? Well, there's a technique that you can use that reduces the time you spend on email by up to 90%, 90% that I can share with you. Yes. So that's about hacking back all these external triggers. Even our kids, by the way, you know, so many of us work from home now. Our kids are a huge distraction. What do we do about that? So I show you exactly what to do about that. The fourth and final step is to prevent distraction with pacts. Pacts are what we call a pre-commitment device. It's when we decide in advance what firewall we will erect, what barrier to getting distraction distracted we will have in place so that if everything else fails, how do we make sure we stay on course? And mm -hmm. so it's these four strategies in concert, mastering internal triggers, making time for traction, hacking back external triggers, and preventing distraction with packs. These four techniques in concert I didn't do the research that, that created these techniques. This is decades old stuff. What right. I did was put together these techniques into a framework anyone can use, whether you read the book or not, frankly, that, you, that anyone can use to understand why they got distracted and to do something about it. That email hack you were talking about, I would love to hear. What oh, that, that piqued your interest, huh? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Pain points right there. Yeah, yeah. Email is, is uh, the bane of many uh, knowledge workers' existence. And so that, one of the things, that, uh, go ahead, yeah. go ahead. No, no, please. Oh, I, I was just going to say one of the things I, I, I do because I manage my phone really well. I turn mm -hmm. it off roughly an hour before bed and then I keep it off more or less until noon the next day. Mm -hmm. And that is, that's served me really, really well to, to minimize those distractions. Cause I notice if I get into those miscellaneous messages before noon, the, the morning time of, of workflow will really you know, it would just knock me out. But the one thing I haven't yet quite mastered is is the email because email is easily accept, accessible on the laptop or computer. And I just like, it's kind of like a game. I'll have, you know, after a day, oh. 50 to 75 emails. And then it's like, oh, if, if I get it down to 20 or 15, I succeeded. And those other 15 that, that just lay there, I can revisit them later on in a week sort yeah. of thing. So. By the way, do you see the variable rewards there? Yes. Email, <laughs> right? The uncertainty of, of what's in an email, right? Is it good yeah. news? Is it bad news? Is it yeah. uh, silly stuff? Is it spam? Is it important? Is it funny? Right? There's so much variability. Who's uh -huh. it from? Right? Uh -huh. There's so much variability. It's a little slot machine in your pocket. Yeah. And it's a great tool. I'm not, I'm not you know, uh, bad-mouthing email or any technology, yeah. frankly. It's a great tool. But we have to make sure we learn how to use it as opposed to letting it use us. So yeah. uh, one thing, so so you've done one thing uh, very, very well, which is to schedule that time. Yeah. Many people, when they can't think of what else to do with their time, check email. When they're stressed, check email. When they're anxious, they check email. When they're uncertain, they check email. Mm -hmm. That's bad news, right? Because again, we have to start with the internal trigger. So first do the homework that I assign for how, how to manage those internal triggers. That's the most important first step to know what you will do when you feel stress, uncertainty, whatever, these internal triggers that people, uh, that prompt people to check email. It's not, it doesn't necessarily cure that uncertainty or fatigue or whatever it's, but it, it, it gives temporary relief. So we have to make sure we understand why we are being triggered internally 
to look for escape from those bad feelings mm -hmm. uh, through email. So that's the first step. Second step is to schedule that time. Uh, so what we want to do is to make sure we have time in our day for managing email. Don't just do it whenever you feel like it. Have the time booked just like you would book a meeting or you know whatever else you'd want to do. Have that time scheduled so you know, hey, that time is coming. Okay, so if you find, you know what, I really need the morning time to, to do my reflective focused work so that you're not constantly thinking, yeah, but when am I going to check email? When am I going to check email? Know that you have that time scheduled on your calendar. Okay. Right. The next thing, so to, to, to really uh, dive deep into what we do about email, when we do time studies of where people waste time on email, it's fascinating where the time is wasted. Okay. Mm -hmm. So time wasted on email is not with the checking or the replying, the time wasted on email is the re-checking. That's the problem. <laughs> That's where we waste most of our time. You know what I'm talking about Exactly here, right? what you, I do, yeah. You yeah, open yeah. an email, what's in it? Oh, I, I don't need that right now. Let me close it, put it yeah. away. What's in that other email? Oh, let me open it, close it, put it away. So that's where people waste time on email. So here's mm -hmm. how we do it. Here's how we reduce the time you spend on email by up to 90%. Here's what we do. You make a rule that says you only touch email two times, okay? The first time you touch that email, you are going to open that email and ask yourself the most important question concerning email from a time management perspective, which is not what does the email say? That's not the right question. The right question is when does it need a reply? Okay, mm -hmm. so the first time you check that email, when does it need a reply? Okay. And then it's gonna fall into a few buckets, either never, Right, So if it's spam or if it's just some message that doesn't need your response, the answer is never. You just delete it or archive it right away. Okay, mm -hmm. That's the first bucket. The next bucket is this email is, oh my God, super important. Uh, house is on fire. You have to respond right away. That's about less than 1% of your right. emails. Why? Right. Because if your house is on fire, some, not, somebody's not going to email you. They're going <laughs> to call you. Right. So people think that 80% of their email is house on fire type of emails. It's, it's actually less than 1%, okay? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Very, very few of your emails do you need to actually respond to right now. Right. Now, about 20% about, uh, of your emails will be need a response today, okay? So something that's, that's urgent, but not this minute, it can be responded to within 24 hours, okay? So what I want you to do is when you get those kind of emails, I want you to label them with, you know, everybody's email service provider has labels, whether it's Outlook or Gmail or whatever. Uh, if you don't know how to do it, Google it. Label the email today, okay? Mm -hmm. Then put it away, check the next email. Uh, the 80% uh, the, uh, uh, of your email, the remaining 80% or so of your email will be email that can be responded to sometime this week, mm -hmm. okay? 80% of your emails, turns out time studies show don't need a response today. They can be responded to sometime this week. I want you to label those as this week. So, okay. so does that make sense? So if it's super urgent, the 1% of emails that need a response right away, go ahead. It almost never happens. But if it's, you know, house is actually on fire, <laughs> take care of it. If it's the 20% of emails that need a response uh, uh, sometime uh, today, mark it as such as with the label. If it's sometime this week, mark it as such a label. Now, yeah. now, now we have the second pass, okay? The second time we reply to emails. Don't reply to all those emails just yet. When you have that time on your calendar for, e for emailing, what I want you to do is to book one time slot in your day to only respond to the 20% of emails that need a response today that you labeled as such, okay? Okay. Now, remember, that's now 20% of your email inbox. It's way fewer emails than mm -hmm. you'd expect. Mm -hmm. And only reply to those emails that you labeled as requiring a response today, 
Now, mm -hmm. what about all those other emails? What about the 80% of emails you get per day that need a response sometime this week? Where's the time saving? Here's the time savings. There's a magical thing that happens when you let emails marinate. Because what people don't understand is that if you want to get fewer emails in a period of time, you have to send fewer emails in a given period of time. Right. What way too many people do is they respond to emails that are easy to reply to, quick answers. And what happens is we get into this email ping pong game uh -huh. where it's back and forth and back and forth and back and forth because they're easy to reply to, even if they don't need a reply today. So by slowing down that email ping pong game, okay, those 80% of emails that you get per day that don't need an immediate response, here's what happens. You save all that email ping pong that didn't need to happen today because you realize it can be responded to one time per week, not every day. Right. Because you know, as soon as you send someone an email, they're gonna send it right back. You're not actually getting rid of anything. You're just yeah. increasing the total number of emails you receive. So that's one benefit. Another benefit is that when you let emails marinate, they disappear, mm -hmm. they evaporate. How? People realize, wait a minute, okay, uh, it looks like uh, something else urgent came around, or maybe I'll figure this out on my own, or maybe I'll ask somebody else, or maybe I'll Google it for myself if I need the answer to something. Uh -huh. And by giving it a little bit of time, what you will find is that those 80% of emails that don't need an urgent reply, that can reply to sometime this week, they'll shrink. They just yeah. magically disappear. They'll be crushed under the weight of people's other priorities, and they don't need an urgent reply. And so wow. you will reduce dramatically the number of emails that actually need a reply just by sorting out the ones that need a response today and the ones that can use a reply sometime this week. So for me, in my calendar, I have about an hour and a half of email replying to urgent emails that need a reply today. Mm -hmm. Then every Monday, I call it Message Monday. On Message Mondays, I have a three-hour block to flush through all those emails that didn't need an urgent reply just sometime this week. And that has dramatically cut down on the time I spend on emails. Wow, that's gold. Gold right there. Thank you. <laughs> Thank awesome. you so much. That's the tip of the iceberg. There's so you, much more. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I know. Uh, Nir, I think we're going to wrap it up there. I do have one final question that I like sure. to ask all the guests on our podcast. One of the things we do is we take the longer form interviews and we publish those, but we also cut them up into two and 10 minute episodes, two to 10 minute episodes and publish those on Monday and Friday. But I always ask, you know, there's plenty of Gold, golden tips here that we can create a, those high performance episodes. But w what are some of your, uh, let's just say, what's your daily routine look like for a guy like you, how you manage your life? What is your morning, you know, morning wake up time? What do you do in the mornings, afternoon, evening, and then bedtime sleep schedule? Yeah. So my, my, so one of the uh, secrets to becoming indistractable is to use a time box calendar is to plan your time ahead uh, because if you don't, uh, you, you can't call something a distraction unless you know what distracted you from. So I see my daily schedule every single day uh, because I plan it in advance. Now, right. it doesn't always stay the same from week to week, but in my calendar is 15 minutes that I do that I take every single Sunday to plan the week ahead. Now, mm -hmm. it, it takes almost no time, less than 15 minutes. Sometimes it takes me less than five minutes. But I have to sit down and plan that calendar because, again, if, I, if, if you don't know what you got distracted from, you can't say you got distracted. Mm -hmm. So my routine now that I've been doing this for several years, and this completely changed my life, is, is uh, I, know, I you know it's pretty rote. I know what's going to happen. So uh, every day I get up around 7 uh, and 7.15 to 8, I have breakfast with my family. 
um, from eight o'clock to uh, 10 o'clock. I do interviews because I'm in Singapore. So that's my best time to do interviews with the States. Yeah. Uh, from 10 to noon, I, I have my email time. So about two hours or so. And then from lunch for lunchtime from uh, 12 to one, I have lunch. And then uh, from one to one thirty, I do some morning pages reflection. And then from one thirty to three thirty, I write. And then uh, from three thirty, I'll uh, I th- that block of time changed from day to day. Either I'll do uh, uh, I'll take a walk or take some uh, do some exercise, uh, listen to uh, some some articles or podcasts. Uh, then I have dinner with my family at six. And then uh, after six, uh, I'll do some interviews with the states. Again, that's a good time because it's twelve-hour time difference, uh-huh. and uh, that's that's pre- a pretty typical schedule. Now, uh, that doesn't mean that it's set in stone forever. So, right. if I need to take a meeting, if I need to plan something, that's why sitting down uh, for those fifteen minutes per week and planning out. Okay, if my values dictate that I need time for writing or time with my daughter or whatever the case might be, I may have to move some things around. But I know in advance what that schedule is going to look like. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. Okay, let's wrap this up. I really have loved this interview. You're a genius, man. Um, <laughs> and and I, I'm going to apply this email hack that you told me as soon as we get off here. Nir, if the li- listeners want to learn more about what you have going on in, in your books and in your blog, where's the best place they can find you at? Sure. Thanks. So my blog is nearandfar.com. Near is spelled like my first name. So that's N-I-R and far.com. And my two books are Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products and Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. And that's available wherever books are sold. Perfect, man. I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing all your tips and tricks with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Nir. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. And listeners, we're going to wrap up there. Thank you guys for tuning in once again. And we'll see you on the next episode. Goodbye, everybody. Hey listeners, thanks for joining us once again. We wanted to remind you about our high-performance productivity coaching and our six, seven, and eight-figure private masterminds. These are all designed for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs to help you scale rapidly and grow. Check out all the details at thebusinessmethod.com. That's thebusinessmethod.com. And we'll see you all on the next episode.